take note of the quality of people that I bring into my life and keep in my life. And let that be a marker to you and our listeners, the quality of me. You know what I'm saying? His quality reflects well on my motherfucking quality. You understand? This is getting motherfucking. Understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I I really do because during the mm-hmm. during the episode, Adrian's been texting me saying, "You know that Delma and I aren't that tight," and so I really appreciate your patience <laughs> with this whole thing. And so that has been just beautiful to see and witness. I just met him. I actually yeah. just met him like, yeah, like two months ago. ago. Yeah, and, and he's been like texting me and emailing me. He's bothering me. me. And, oh, no, I'll be like, dude, just pretend. Just pretend. <laughs> I got some stories you can just loop into. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. And so, you know, Adrian, definitely, we've been texting for a bit. And I just, I really appreciate your honesty then and your honesty now. Yeah, y'all whack as hell. Both of y'all for that. <laughs> oh, man. I'm just here, man. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Dive In Justice, the podcast that explores building ideal communities with our less than ideal selves. I am Delma Jackson. And I'm Shandine Garcia. And today we're going to be joined by Delma's lifelong friend, who is a lieutenant colonel in the United States Army, Adrian Massey. And I got to talk to him a little bit before, and he is amazing. You're not going to want to miss this. Hey, Shandine. Shandine. Don't. Welcome back. Welcome back. It's another week. It's another episode. I'm so happy to see you. I'm so excited to have my homeboy, Adrian, here. But I got to ask you, I got to ask you, what's your petty been like lately? Let me Hmm? be clear to our listeners. Talk to the people. We made a decision that Delma would open with his petty. And this is his petty way of putting me first. Can I just say that loud and clear? That's Everyone fine. Who's listening? That is he accurate. manipulated it so that I would go first when I specifically yep. said, "I would love if you would go first on this one." And now he's but pointing to his watch, listeners. The All people right. are waiting. All right, the people I'll are go. waiting. Let's go. go. And to be clear to my listeners, to our listeners, Delma, <laughs> I'm really fucking mortified to share my petty this week. Oh, that's why you wanted me to go a first. A little bit, a little bit. I'm not going to lie. A wow. I know. This is me helping you step into a better version of yourself. You are fucking welcome. Let's do it. Go I for hate, it. I hate you so much. I was asked, uh, I was invited to give some testimony um, at a pretty high level congressional hearing. And I've never been asked to offer testimony in my area of expertise mm-hmm. on a congressional hearing. I've done it stateside. I've done it like state, like not stateside, state uh, hearings, ways and means subcommittees, education committees um, on trying to pass bills and stuff like that. And I was pretty excited to do this. They interviewed me and we had what I thought was like an hour long, really engaging conversation. And they seemed great and wonderful. They asked me to send them some, a link of another webinar I'd been in and some talking points. And I did. And then they responded the next day, disinviting me. <laughs> mm-hmm. They responded saying, uh, they are now not going to invite me to testify. And this is after I had prepped my kids because mm-hmm. sometimes Fox news picks this shit up and mm-hmm. 
I was worried about their safety and my safety as I should, based on probably what I was going to say. Sure. Um, and, and here's, and here's the petty, which I can't believe I'm going to say this out loud. I wanted to research all three of these humans who are this representative's uh, congressional staff. Mm-hmm. I wanted to research all of them, find shitty stuff about them, yep. and then send it to their the person who they're working for in Congress. <laughs> <laughs> to this Congress person. <laughs> I wanted to like do deep oppo research and name shitty things about them because I was yeah. so upset. And um, I felt I can't believe my children are going to listen to me say this, but I swear to God, from the moment they said you're on, we're, we are no, we are now no longer extending an invitation for you to testify. Is that how they said it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> They said, given the other people we've interviewed, we're now not extending an invitation to you. (laughs) And so I I wanted to, I just wanted to eviscerate them, light them up, and send it to their boss. I'm like, I'm not going to lie. That's all that I was thinking about. What stopped you? What's not the right thing to do? Interesting. Okay. But you surely you knew that when you started down that path, you understood it wasn't the right thing to do when you started. So what actually stopped you? Sometimes <laughs> sometimes I wish you wouldn't ask me these questions. <laughs> sometimes I wish you would say, Shandy, that's so reasonable and that's so amazing that you knew that wasn't the right thing to do. And I really this wouldn't be a petty story if that I, was. I the really case. respect that. I was fucking lazy. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't have, I didn't have time this week, and then I had some friends over Saturday night and Sunday morning when I had set aside a set of time to do some work. I'm like, this is where I'm going to research that shit. This is what I'm going to write to their boss. This is what I'm just going to out them for for being horrible human beings and rejecting me. You were too lazy. I was too fucking lazy. I was like, fuck it. (laughs) Too lazy to be petty. That should be our t-shirt. Seriously. Too lazy to be petty. I was too lazy to be petty. I want stickers made of that to put on my water bottles. Coffee mugs. Yeah. I want hoodies. I want the whole thing with with our faces. I I love it. I I love it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that happened, and I do think it's their loss. And, well, and, and people yourself. say that, or bullet dodged, or all the nice, beautiful, kind things. And honestly, I wanted to talk about what it means to erase and, and, and invisibilize indigenous humans and how that mm-hmm. is actually the mistake in the environmental justice movement when, when people talk about we need to conserve a park or we need to like save the spotted owl. I fucking care about the spotted owl myself too. Mm-hmm. But when they're killing and raping us one and three, one and three, mm-hmm. when my boys can look at all the aunties in our family and know that we're raped or murdered one and three more than once in terms of rape in our lifetime. If that's mm-hmm. not an environmental justice issue that they can't actually humanize a group of people. I don't know mm-hmm. what else is. Mm-hmm. 
And that felt like a rejection of me. Yeah. And when it's a rejection of me and what I feel is sacred and important, I want to be a better human. I want to have higher ground. I want to say, well, it's their loss, bullet dodge. They didn't quite get it. Maybe it's not the right platform, but that's not where I go. I go to how can I fuck them over? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I realize <laughs> my ultimate Betty. Nah. I'm just gonna like sleeping on Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit. I mean, you know what? To be honest with you though, in your defense, and this would be one of the few times I'll do this, but in your defense, I think um what you're naming is 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 personal. Right? It's not the spot at all. It's like it's me, it's my aunts, it's my cousins, it's my mom, it's my grandma. And it feels like a fuck you to all of them. And that's fair to, to respond that way. Um, and when we feel threatened, which I think white supremacy so often makes us feel, right? Like I see y'all being gunned down. I hear you telling me y'all getting right. And I don't give a fuck. Then I think the natural human response is to want to protect yourself. And sometimes that means attacking, you know, you want to attack, you want to like get back, but not for get back sake. It's like, you won't do this to nobody else. But where's the honor (laughs) and then being too busy, I mean, too tired and too lazy to want to fucking do it. (laughs) There's no honor there. That's the petty. I appreciate the validation. I appreciate the hearing that this matters. And or I'm just going to fucking sleep in on Sunday morning. And by sleep in, I mean from instead of getting up at 4 a.m., I'm going to get up at 6 a.m. I'm not I'm not going to say you uh, aren't petty as fuck. Sweet. Okay. Don't okay. let me off the hook. I'm not, I'm not going to say you're not. However, is being told I don't matter exhausting? Absolutely. Fair enough. Absolutely. And rest is, what do I always tell you? Rest is what? Revolutionary. Revolutionary. Rest is revolutionary. You got that right. Especially for women of color. Especially for women of color. Rest is revolutionary. So get yours and fuck them. And if you change your mind after you rest up. You best help me do some oppo research. I got your back. Fuck yeah. I got your back. And I know somebody who's really good at communications. (laughs) Who might be able to help us out. We'll be introducing him later in the show. But anyway. Oh, I'm taking note. Note to self. Yeah. 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 Um, and I hope our guest is taking note as he's <laughs> listening. All right. Well, I appreciate it. I really do. Because it's it's hard to be witnessed in your petty. So thank you. Uh, hey, what what you got? Bring it. Seriously. So, yeah, I am. I've been struggling with what to talk about and having mixed feelings. I think I tend to want to validate what can feel petty. Right. But I'm going to go ahead and go here. Um, I'm having a I'm feeling. um, Is this petty or is this two faced? Is this petty or is this survival? Is this petty or fill in the blank? I have a lot of really harsh feelings about predominantly white organizations that I work with and what they're willing to do and not willing to do. And when I'm in a space like this where I'm comfortable and it's you and it's my homeboy and we all BIPOC folks and we just shooting the shit, 
I could talk big shit about them. I could say big shit about what they need to be doing, what they ain't doing, et cetera, et cetera. But then the minute I get on that Zoom call with them, I want to play nice. I want to be patient. I want to be charming. I want to hold their hands and emotionally guide them in what feels like the right direction to me. Um, And I end up pushing down a lot of anger and frustration and not articulating it. Maybe I'm just trying to keep my job, but so are they. Right. We're all operating in this white supremacy system. That's not the right on that. You're not going to give me that. I'm going to give you that you're trying to keep your job. I'm not going to give them the out that they're trying to keep theirs. They are, Mm -hmm. they are working to operationalize a way of being that centers them. Mm -hmm. If they cared about actual deep transformational change, they would be leaning in to what you're bringing and creating the conditions for you to bring it. I don't find Mm -hmm. it petty to, um, find ways to craft the narrative in a way that they can best receive it. So dig deeper. Where's the petty and how you actually truly feel about them and what you're potentially thinking about when they say shit that forces you to have to reshape a way of delivering a message. I can find myself and I appreciate what your name I find myself not wanting to care about their vulnerability, their humanity, right? It's so easy in these predominantly white spaces to make you white and that's all you are. Because you done said something or did something I don't like. And I say I'm in this work to work, human to human, but in that time and in that space and in that moment, You cease being a human being to me and you become a whitey. You become a cracker. You become something else altogether, something less than. But do I articulate that anger? And that does feel fucked up to me to be that angry sometimes. And to then come on here, because if my listeners, my listeners might come away from the pod thinking like that motherfucker be giving it to people. I don't. I shut up. I swallow that bullshit sometimes. And I can't find the words. And it frustrates me about myself. Is that petty? I don't know. But it feels inconsistent with my values. You know what I'm saying? Yes, I need a paycheck. We all need a fucking paycheck. But the people I tend to look up to the most, the people I tend to venerate, there's an integrity they have, or at least I, I maybe project onto them. I perceive an integrity with them that I don't feel like I have in myself. And that bothers me. Does that make sense? It does. And I'm not, I'm not here to tell you what should or shouldn't bother you. And um, nor am I here to tell you what you get to decide is petty or isn't petty. But centering your ability to make a paycheck. And now you're like, we all get to make paychecks. Come on. Like white people have access to money the way we never will and never have. So Fair. your need to have a paycheck is about putting money in Dono's mouth. I'm sorry, putting food in Dono's mouth, period. Mm-hmm. 
And when they force you to make the decision about how you deliver a message Mm -hmm. up against, can I make sure that tuition is paid and food is in my my child's mouth? Mm Mm-hmm. There's nothing fucking petty about weighing a choice and delivering a decision at the other end of that. There just mm-hmm. isn't. We just don't get that. Is it is it petty because you question or compare yourself up against what you think other people are doing, who you venerate, rightly or wrongly? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that's for us to decide. I think your our endeavor here is to humanize our struggle. And I wonder what their humanizing of their struggle in that would be. Mm-hmm. Now, is it petty if you're like dreaming of eliminating their demise? Is it petty if you struggle with a little bit of hypocrisy in it? No, I think it's petty if you're if you're acting shady around it. <laughs> acting shady around it. Say more. Um, are you like, what can I do to manipulate to ensure that like? they feel some level of horrible because of what they're asking me to engage in. Mm-hmm. Like how can mm-hmm. I make them look or feel fucking stupid or how mm-hmm. can I come out on the other side of it in a way that I'm getting a little bit of relief in it. I think that's where the petty lives. Oh, I thought that was my job. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's both. How can I get white guilt to, to like be present in these spaces? Well, the problem is you're actually digging deep into how you deliver the message because you know they're going to fucking kill the messenger if done badly or it's not going to land if done ba- if done wrong because mm-hmm. you're navigating this white fragility mm-hmm. and i think it's i think it's the absolute most reasonable thing in the world to sit there and question how can we do how can we navigate that well what does it mean i need to get paid how do i do this how by like like getting petty is when you like go below the belt and you press the buttons on them that you know actually aren't grounded in humanity, but are a little bit maybe grounded in snarkiness. Yeah, I, I leveraging guilt is something that the only so the only reason I tend not to try to do that more frequently is not a moral thing. It's a long game. It's a long game. If I leverage your guilt then the white supremacists are correct. That your guilt is all I actually want. Mm. Not transformation, Mm -hmm. not your humanity to come Mm -hmm. more full circle. Mm -hmm. I just want you to feel bad about being white. Mm -hmm. I don't want to give them that. I think that's the petty, and I think that's a reasonable petty. Feel shitty about being white (laughs) a little bit. deep down we believe that white people need to have a healthy like identity and i know white people who i would walk through fire for and they'd need it at the same time i think those people would also allow us to feel like to dig down to that fucking petty feel shitty about that and i'm gonna manipulate a meeting to make you feel shitty about it Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
mm-hmm. or want to. Maybe I do, or I don't, but I'm going to spend a lot of time dreaming and thinking about it. Yeah. You and I had talked about what it meant to parachute into Texas, a whole mm-hmm. bunch of facilitators to get mm-hmm. these fucking assholes who think they're upset about critical race theory and we know they're not and what it would do to like get them to really get it. And you know, from the second we step on the plane all the way in, we're thinking petty ass shit the mm-hmm. whole plane ride in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's akin to the same thing that you're saying. I think it's all reasonable and fine. And how do we show up? How did you show yeah. up? How'd you show up? It's, it's it, it always comes back to, usually it comes back to one or two things. Either I bounce because I can't take it no more. And I Fair. let them know I care. And why? <laughs> you say I can't deal with your shit because your white ego fragility. Like your fragility I can't your... fucking take is like I don't yeah. get paid enough to hold the space for your fucked up fragility. That's what you say. And not the fucked up fragility, because that's not normally what I see. What I see is over reliance on logistics. Same that's more. what I call Same y'all more. a lot on. Say more. Y'all don't want to have a hard conversations. Y'all want to talk about who's reporting to who. Mm-hmm. And what time the meeting is and, you know, what's a decision making hierarchy if we're going to go forward with racial justice work internally? Who should report to who and which department and how does HR fit into this? You all to talk about that for three years, but you won't be vulnerable and identify your own racism and not out loud. You know what I mean? And so when I perceive that a group is hiding behind hierarchy. And logistics, I'm quick to name that and be like, when y'all are actually ready to have an authentic conversation that's going to involve moving from here to here, then let me know. And I'm happy to show up and and help with that. Say the here to here so our listeners can, can. From the head to the heart. Right. From the head to the heart. I forgot I was on a goddamn podcast. If you're not ready to move from the head exclusively, and bring in some fucking heart. And I see this more with white dudes. Especially. They have a real hard time. Staying in their heart. You know. And so they don't want to be vulnerable. Because all their life they've been taught that that's too risky. That they have too much to lose. That's not exclusive to white men though. I'm not no, trying no, to no. like. I'm not no, trying to pull no, off no, no, your no, petty no. convo. But like. let's Let's put a pin in the. I get that, but that's not exclusive to white men. Nowhere near exclusive to white men. What I'm suggesting is that when I'm working in predominantly white spaces, then I'm dealing with predominantly white men. Got it. You know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah, if you want to see some brothers, some men across all others get into their fields, then introduce conversations around patriarchy and gender bullshit. That you'll see some sensitive ass men of every race. At that point, you know, manly man who who can't seem to tolerate a conversation about how we might be healthier as men. Yeah. They can't handle it. So I am. um, I struggle with the line between what is truly petty, what is Mm self-preservation. You know, mm-hmm. what is um, I don't always feel like I have a good handle on how to pull those two things apart. But what I am clear on is that a group of white people 
who say they want to do racial justice work, but then turn around and seem to like want to do everything else. It's so easy for me to not see their humanity yeah. anymore. Yeah. And that is petty. Yeah. I don't, cause I don't want to see it. Yeah. That's the petty. Yeah. I hear it. That's the petty. That's the petty. It's not Y'all a box of sardines at this point. Right. It's not about, <laughs> for real. it's true. It's not about trying to preserve yourself. It's not about trying to like understand the situation. It's about, I actually no longer see your humanity. And I get to feel superior to you. Mm. I get to feel superior to you because I can do something. I've cultivated the ability to sink into a place that you refuse to sink into. Hell, you don't even see the importance of doing it. That makes me a superior human being to you. Now, you tell me that ain't petty. I hear you. Do you also double down on the self-righteousness of it? Oh, hells yes. <laughs> That's where the fun resides. <laughs> That's that's when I can go in the mirror and see Baldwin and MLK and Malcolm just hugging me up like, no, nah, you're right. Fuck them. <laughs> they ain't w- shit. I'm going to jump in and join your petty. I'm with it. Come yes. on now. Yes. There is a moral superiority that I can feel coming out of spaces like that. I want to invite us to consider that those, the, the moral superiority lanes aren't absent the need for self-preservation at the same time. Sure. That they're actually not separate lanes. I and say. so yeah. when you said, I, got, I have a hard time seeing the distinction, I don't know that we're supposed to. That's fair. But I don't know. What the fuck am I talking about? I was dreaming up the downfall of three humans <laughs> <laughs> the only reason i didn't do it is because i wanted to get an extra hour of sleep there you go there you go <laughs> well i appreciate oh, i appreciate you sharing i appreciate you unpacking it even though you forced me to go first quit crying you ever think about that you ever think about being kind no uh, yeah <laughs> not really yeah <laughs> when we come back we are um, blessed to be joined by one of my lifelong homeboy of mine um, from undergrad and beyond. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Adrian Massey will be back with us. Please stay tuned. Thank you for giving Diving Justice a listen. We recognize that your time is the most valuable currency you have. If you're digging the pod, there are a couple of things you could do to show your support. First, head over to your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds of your time. And every review helps us grow our listenership and broadens the conversations we can have together. The second thing you can do and should do is consider supporting the podcast by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash dive underscore in underscore justice. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for sticking with us. Um, I'm so excited uh, for our next guest. I have known this brother going all the way back to 1997. Um, Lieutenant Colonel Adrian Massey is joining us today. He is a Lieutenant Colonel in the United States Army, born in Detroit, Michigan, and raised in Inkster, Michigan. 
while attending uh, Eastern Michigan University. He studied abroad with your boy, with your co-host at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. And upon graduating from Eastern Michigan University in 2002, he was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the U.S. Army. Adrian holds a master's degree from Western University in information technology management and a diploma from the United States Army Command and General Staff College, class of 14-01. Adrian has served in the U.S. Army for over 18 years, lived in Europe for eight years of his adult life, served in the prestigious prestigious units such as the 18th Airborne Corps, the 35th Signal Brigade Airborne at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and the 2nd Cavalry Regiment in Vilsic, Germany. Adrian deployed to Iraq for Operation Iraqi Freedom 3 and Operation Iraqi Freedom from 2007 to 2009 as a company commander, providing communications for over 4,000 infantrymen throughout Baghdad. He was awarded the Bronze Star Medal for Excellence in Combat. His last assignment was the Brigade Operations Officer for the 160th Signal Brigade at Camp Arifjan, Kuwait, where he managed the U.S. Army's Tier 2 communications for all of Southwest Asia. He is currently serving as a strategic planner and transitioning to the Network Operations Officer for Arlington National Cemetery. Adrian is also a published author of a collection of poetry in a book entitled A Soldier's Poetic Response, A Slice of His Life. I will briefly share, as we so often do, a little short story to illustrate uh, one of my favorite memories about this brother. So he and I are biking back from classes in Kronigan, and um, we lived in a student house with probably about 30 students, roughly. And all of the students were from various parts of the world. And um, on this particular day, uh, we passing a flower stand. And we had been noticed how cheap the flowers were out here. And he taps me, points to the stand, says, bruh, let's just buy the stand out, take all these flowers home, hand them out to our uh, live mates and just see what it does to the place. Never would have occurred to me to do something like that. And it was the best, like, what, five bucks I think I ever spent in my entire fucking life. To see the looks on people's faces when we got to handing out flowers to everybody, it was hugs, it was tears, it was joy. And that kind of beauty brought into a space is how I have experienced this brother ever since I've known him. One of my favorite people ever. Good brother, Adrian, welcome to Dive Justice. It's great to have you, man. Hey, I'm so delighted to be here. And uh, that was not the story I thought you were going to tell. I'm so grateful that I know. you did share that story. I know, I know. <laughs> I cringed up. Hey, you know, old college friends, this can go a lot of different ways. <laughs> but no, all in all, hey, I'm, 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 I'm delighted to be here. I think uh, the two of you, just the work that you do together, is such a gift and, and helping really um, humanize these, these discussions. And really, I just, I think just push these conversations forward in, in deeper ways. So I appreciate you. Thank you so much to both of you. Yeah, man, I appreciate you. Appreciate you. Delma said that when he met you, 
you were about to give your trial sermon to be a pastor. Yeah. Yeah. So I have like, like complicated questions to that. One is the obvious, which is what led you to that point. And two is, do you feel that whatever led you to that point is still alive in what you're doing now? So <clears throat> complicated questions. Yes. Uh, I, ha- I think I have a complicated answer to that. I-, I would say what led me to that first is, is pure survival and just listen to you and Delma both engage back and forth in the, in the beginning of the podcast. What, what I, what I heard a lot of is um, survival through white supremacy. Right. And so me coming from, you know, born in Detroit, raised in Inkster, Michigan, if I come from one of those quintessential uh, black families that made the great migration from sharecroppers and plantations in the south up to Detroit to then work in in, uh, in the auto industry, which is huge, you know, for us. And that was a, a big movement, I think, for <clears throat> not just black folks in particular, but just people trying to seek some type of, you know, economic gain. But through that, um, just thinking about my family, I come from everything from, uh, you know, seriously straight up street dudes and drug dealers to carpenters to a bunch of just hardworking church folks to, um, I mean, it's a mix of Detroit and Memphis can buy. Right. And so, um, through all of that, and, and as I often think of and spend a lot of time studying just um, the labor that it has taken to keep our family together as I watch my elders move through all of that, uh, I've learned so much survival. At the time, I really didn't see any. I mean, I, I, you know, in between 12 to 15, my adolescent years, um, early teenage years, the and my environment in Michigan at the time was there wasn't a lot of hope for young black men. The, the, the opportunities were so limited. Um, I could go on and on about that. The first thing I, th- I thought to do is to nurture and grow my spirit. Maybe it's something inside of me. Right. And so I worked that piece. Um, and church was that avenue. And then, you know, how's that, re- how, how's that relate now? I, I, just to give you, and this will probably generate more questions, you know, at, at 12, um, as a, as a survivor, as a survivor of just being a young black man in, you know, Metro Detroit area all around, you know, at 12, I learned how to cut hair and I've never stopped working since I was 12 never stopped trying to figure out how to make money. I had a fist full of crack and weed and trying to hustle and make my money. By 16, uh, I was an associate minister, you know, and by 23, you know, I finished university and standing in front of my first uh, platoon, joined the United States Army. And so that's a whole lot of survival within white supremacy. I don't care how you slice that, right? Um, and, and definitely tying to I think many of the topics that you often discuss. You and I grew up about an hour apart. Right. And uh, I remember that saying you and I are the same age. And I remember 
what it was like in my neighborhood at that time period, 12 to 15, 16 years old. I remember the influx of crack cocaine. I remember the way my community changed drastically. I remember that happening in the background of General Motors shutting down more and more plants and pulling out of the cities that we lived in that were once thriving places, right? There's a reason our folks went there. And um, the church was one of the most well-entrenched institutions in that community, right? You had a liquor store and you had the church. Those were your two primary institutions. And so when you speak to the notion of entering into um, a pastoral life, as a means of survival, I can definitely relate to that. Now, I want to kind of pick back up what Shandine, the second part of Shandine's question, and invite you into that. Where do you see that pastoral piece now in your life? Where have you, how have you seen it follow you even after you left the church in an official capacity? Because you and I had some pretty heavy conversations in the Netherlands about what it meant to be human fuck our race 100%. just a human being so bring that bring that now and i think right away you, you got me thinking about i, I was recently going over uh, uh malcolm gladwell's outliers book right which mm. phenomenal mm-hmm. book you know and the piece that stands out to me right now is talking about um i was i was thinking about what have I done for 10,000 hours? You know, what have I really put mastery mm-hmm. into? And when I think mm-hmm. about back about those years, I really put five, six years of, you know, practicing my, my ability to speak to a group of people, um, really just nurture, nurture my own spirit and soul. Um, I read a lot of books and just like, you know, all of that to put me in front of a group of people and and try to have some positive spiritual influence, right? Um, how has that shown back up? I feel like, you know, once the kind of church chapter closed, I use all of that to navigate, to help me navigate um, being a, an officer in the United States Army, right? Which I think... <laughs> Which for me was like a shock and all, because if you know anything about the military, you know, you got these m- much like America, everything is very binary, so to speak. Right. Mm-hmm. So we have a very binary culture of enlisted folks and officer folks. It's much easier for an officer. But I think when you when you really want to drive people and develop teams, right, you got to really know how to connect to other human beings. And I think, you know, I think now, you know, you talk about diversity and inclusion, that kind of stuff. Army's been kind of forward in the military in general, especially the Army. I can speak, you know, for the Army in that sense, um, from my experience in the Army in that sense, is that, you know, if you look historically, I mean, in in terms of uh, really trying to embrace the LGBT community, really embracing black folks and having true integration of black folks into the military, true integration of women into certain roles, right? We have, the I say we, but the army has set the standard for that kind of stuff, right? But it's one thing to try to inculcate these 
these social changes, these social movements. Um, but as an officer, as a leader, where I think I tap back into that preacher part of me is the, the ability to really, you know, Delma, you were talking about it earlier, connect my, my head and my heart. And those are two places I think the church helped me always stay. And there, and there, and there's a part of that, that, um, that when you get into that kind of spiritual aspect and you, and you truly believe in it, one way or the other, even if you just kind of tap into that, I would hope that you can't help but to really understand humanity. At the end of the day, you want to put all that race bullshit aside, you know, not even put it aside, but it's like, I'm looking at you. I'm looking at you as the whole of the person, right? And so from my standpoint, if 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 I'm, you know, your, your officer, I want to, uh, you know, I, I want to energize you to not just not, I want you to be motivated, right? I want you to be able to tap into and really figure out a way to um, make your experience in, in, in the army, you know, one that you feel value in, one that you feel connected to. And I think that's to some degree, honestly, Dom, I think that's what has given me somewhat of somewhat of an edge as an officer. Right. And ability to connect with folks that, you know, I don't think I would easily be able to connect with without otherwise having that young experience of you know, being a preacher. have a line in one of your poems that's we are of all shades cultures and minds existing while seeking more living and a part of what it feels like you're talking to is that the military is more complex than the narrative that is that is put in front of us um all of the time and and i don't know that i um or that delma or i fully subscribe to that sort of clear clear narrative my father was in the army and it was the first time he had three full meals a day and like, and, and camaraderie and what it gave him in terms of, he actually physically grew, not like out as in gained weight, but actually cause he had nutrition for the first time. And there are a lot of complexities in the army and I'm, and what you're talking about in the military specifically, but you're talking about um, seeing a person's full humanity and it feel, that's what it feels like you're saying, which you can do as a preacher, which you can do as an officer, which you can do in, in whatever locations you choose you choose to show up. And so my, my follow-up question is, what do you want folks or listeners or anybody, not even just listeners of a pod, what do you want people to know about the complexities of justice, liberation, and politics in the military? Justice, liberation, and politics. So it makes me want to start really big and kind of visionary to answer that, right? And so I think 
I think in one sense, in order for, <laughs> and, and this could go a lot of different ways. I think we all got different, you know, some aligned or whatever political views and that kind of stuff. Right. But in order to use, let's distill it down to, if you want to use the military for, you know, getting permission from Congress to actually use the military for its sole purpose of going to combat, right? And then rather that be, air quotes, bringing freedom, <laughs> helping people with freedom, achieve freedom, uh, you know, and <laughs> that's complicated in itself, right? But if you look at it for what its sole, sole purpose is, um, I think in order to, to, to really achieve what we want to as a nation, uh, we have to have our collective citizens' political will. Okay. Um, and that has to be somewhat unified at a fundamental level. And quite frankly, uh, I believe that our political will, our political kind of connectedness and just will as a nation in general to achieve anything in a collective sense is so eroded that without you, Shandine, without you, Delma, without Adrian, you know, all of us individual citizens, how we think, how we move, how we treat one another as Americans, like the conversations that we have, what we do in our communities, you know, how you raise your children, you know, unless we're kind of moving in somewhat the same direction, somewhat at a fundamental level, right? America's never going to achieve what it's set out to achieve. And so when I think about, oh man, you know, I, I got so much more I want to answer to that. But to, to be honest, I really get stuck here because I, you know, I, I last went to Kuwait in 2018 to 19. <laughs> I, I, I came home from navigating 13 different countries all over the Middle East, having real freedom, right? As a soldier, uh, probably could be pictured as an enemy to some, whatever, the level of dignity and respect that I was treated with was far greater than within three days getting back to my home country and getting threatened to be pulled out of my car at gunpoint by a white police mm -hmm. officer. The... <clears throat> The, you know, I, I often, I often experience in this sense, I think all, all of the feels and everything like you, had, that's a very lofty question that you just asked, right? <clears throat> and I consider myself a person that, um, you know, I, I try to be selfless, right? And uh, I think that, yeah, that question just generates a whole lot of feeling for me because on, on one hand 
Um, there is, I, th- I do believe, and this is where, you know, I probably sound a little bit cheesy and patriotic to some degree is that I, I believe America has hands down some of the most pol- uh, incredible political documents of any place in the world. Right. However, uh, unless people move in that direction, it's just fucking paper, man. It's paper. It doesn't mean shit. The Bill of Rights doesn't mean a damn thing. Right. Constitution, which people bitch about and all this other stuff. Everybody's got a great opinion about. It means nothing. If if we can't see one another's full humanity. And that's to me is the greatest flaw of America. Like, you know, our, our flag to me in so many ways. When I see it from my black perspective. Right. I'm often reminded by how this is often only stayed together. The fabric of this flag stayed together because it's been stitched by white supremacy. It's been stitched by, and that's the only thing to me that truly still drives this place. Like that is the fundamental aspect of keeping America together in some ways. And and may sound negative and pessimistic, but I can only speak from this black body's perspective, right? And so I felt... And I feel all of those things as I wear this uniform and I stand in a formation with the idea of wanting, with the idea and the desire to feel uniform. But my black experience has not truly allowed that. And it's just, yeah, man, that's a long answer to, I think, the the question that you asked, but it brings up a lot for me to say the least. I think it's one of the most profound answers I've ever heard to that question from someone who's sitting in the seat that you're sitting in the shoes that you're wearing in the position that you both have been put in and you've have put yourself in. So I just want to just first offer gratitude because I, I, um, I hear it. I hear you and I see you and I just appreciate, um, the depth of that response. So thank you. And I, I echo that. I appreciate it, man. Um, there, <clears throat> something you mentioned was what it felt, what dignity felt like outside the context of the United States. And I want to, I'm thinking about my experience with you in the Netherlands. I'm thinking about Shandine's son, who is uh, doing the whole study abroad piece oh, right wow. now. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. Right? And I think what you touched on is, I want, and I want to ask you this, because it, it's something I go back and forth on, and it's something that um, I've thought about Shandine's son because she was telling me when he was planning to go and just kind of, you know, leading up to to making that move. There's something about the way we are indeed seen in our quote unquote own country. Right. <clears throat> that for me, and I'm wondering if this is true for you. I didn't realize how fucked up 
I felt in the United States until I left and came back. When this is the only thing I've ever known, it becomes normalized. And to get out for a little bit, you know, and I went back again to the Netherlands in 2014, right? And in both instances, to to come home and be delivered this giant weight, to have it, like, shouldered back on me, you know, as I'm getting on the plane and every moment after. You've been to multiple countries and spent far more time living overseas than I ever have. You spent eight years in Germany. Germany. With its own very interesting history and specific history around race. Right? I'm wondering if you don't mind speaking to that piece a little bit. What does it mean to be from a post-industrial America to travel as broadly and for as long as you have, not even traveling, but to live, to set roots in foreign country and then to come back home after all of that time. Yeah, Dale, that is, uh, <clears throat> I think mine sounds very much identical to yours. Like when we, when you and I first studied abroad in the Netherlands, that was 1999. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I remember flying back home and um, my last flight was flying into um, to Newark, New Jersey. And mm-hmm. I'm just young, hadn't had any of this life experience yet. Right. And so I'm just fresh, you know, now at that time, I think I was 20, 19, 19 to 20. And mm-hmm. right away, the engagement, getting off that plane, walking into that Newark airport, like uh, the the intensity and the way people talk to you and the condescending nature that people were speaking to me right away. Mm-hmm. I felt I, I'm like standing at an airport. I got my bags. I'm just standing there in shock, man. I just start crying. Mm-hmm. And that was the that was the first time in my life where it hit me the burden of my blackness, like. Like, this is heavy. Like, I didn't realize I just had a six-month six month break from this. And now, like, I'm in the throes of it right here, you know? And uh, kind of much like I was talking to earlier, uh, it, <laughs> I, I, I feel like you mentioned all my travels and stuff. Uh, being back home in America is often just perpetual heartbreak. And that, that, that is the bottom line, like, um, to, to have a sense of, I think at, at, at times being so knee deep in combat, so knee deep in building, you know, formidable teams, teams that can deploy anywhere, do anything and be the strongest, best freaking human beings they can be intellectual, spiritually, emotionally, building up their physical bodies, all of this stuff. Like I'm building my team. I'm putting heart and soul into them, right? Deploy with these kids, get everybody back home. And then through that experience, you drink a little bit of the Kool-Aid and all American Mm Kool-Aid, right? 
And so mm-hmm. in some sense, I'm like, man, I'm a freaking believer, man. Uh, I'm American. Mm-hmm. I got wear this flag. I stand here with my people, you know. And then at home, I can I, I got to tell myself the reality. Be prepared to experience this perpetual heartbreak. And you can only give yourself so many times that pet talk. And there, there are going to be some times where, you know, you're just casually moving around, you know, trying to buy, buy, buy some milk for your baby girl at the counter in some place in, you know, uh, <laughs> North Carolina where, you know, where, where I'm reminded of, like, where I felt like I was in maybe the 19 freaking 40s or 50s. You know, where women don't want to serve me because mm-hmm. I'm black. Yeah. And she wouldn't even mm-hmm. acknowledge my presence. <laughs> and I got these white folks around me like, hey, lady, like, are you serious? You know? And, and how quickly I can be thrown off my square and reminded, hey, son, <laughs> Remember who you are. And, you know, it may not come to me in those words, but how many times I experience that. And that's what it feels like every time, you know, it feels, it feels like you are less than every time. doesn't matter what the hell you do. And so, you know, I've checked, I feel like I've checked every proverbial block that you can check in this country that they asked us to do. Right. It doesn't mean shit Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Be real. doesn't mean shit when it comes to, my blackness and just walking around as a freaking citizen in the United States of America. And, uh, you know, as a kind of at the culmination of my career, you know, it's, uh, I, I have a lot of fear and, you know, what it, what it anticipating now, uh, not being able to hold on to this, identity, that this identity is not the forefront, because I also recognize the privilege uh, of being a United States Army officer and the privilege that that comes with oftentimes when I'm in uniform, right? Or I'm in spaces to where people know, oh, that's the Army guy, right? But I'm getting ready to be just, hey, just just another black guy walking around and, you know, walking around the streets. And uh, again, that, that, that comes with that same heaviness that I felt landing for the first time after having a break from it at, at 19 years old. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I appreciate that, man. I, um, Shandine, did you want to go with? No, I want to go with where you're going. Which is we've been talking we've been talking a lot. Delma and I will talk about anger. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and let him frame the question from his um, from his space. I I think at some point earlier in the episode I was talking about the anger that comes up for me, right? And I think one of the things we learned early on at starting at home. Um. Inside the home, so often our our anger has to be suppressed because it is perceived by our parental figures as insubordination. And insubordination cannot be tolerated. Right. So when I think about my parents, there's no place for my anger. Because that that will bring the violence. Right. Me, me 
having a genuine expression of anger was an invitation to violence. Um, but in my neighborhood, my identity as a man is tied up in my willingness to engage in violence. Right. The military. Right. Which my father served in, my grandfather served in, but I have not. Hmm? It is my understanding that part of its role is to weaponize the body and the mind. When I think about the anger I hold, I couldn't imagine what it must feel like to come home after having navigated what you've navigated for almost two decades to then come home and have some motherfucker act like they can't even recognize your humanity when you're trying to get service, just basic ass service. What do you do with the anger that can come when you are not seen in the place you serve? And you're weaponized? Where does that go? about coming back from Kuwait this last time and um, you know just what I experienced with the police and that kind of stuff from from that moment shortly after that was uh, George Floyd's you know mm-hmm. um, the death of George Floyd and the hands of you know by the hands of a white police officer And then that, coupled with the pandemic, in the height of uh, President Trump's, I have no idea what that was or what we were, what what was trying to be achieved, but it felt like full blown, you know, uh, white supremacy to me, at the highest form that I think I've ever experienced it or imagined it at the government level. The fear that I felt and what that did to my heart, to my brain, um, last, I think to give great context, I think it's important that I tell you the date. So November 4th um, of the last election was the day that I, for the first time, I went to the emergency room that day, which was followed by uh, going to the psych ward, was followed by uh, a 28-day residential treatment facility program. All to do with PTSD and, truth be told, anger. 
What do you do with all of that heartbreak? What do you do with it all? The the amount of therapy for me and conscious effort to be positive and just keep going and some have a little bit of faith in my neighbors. Um, I have to constantly break up that anger. Got to break it up. You know, <clears throat> it's like, it's like uh, trying to keep my soil fresh, you know, so new things can continue mm-hmm. to grow. Cause if I let this soil mm-hmm. kind of harden this, it, that's in me, um, it's just bad, man. It's just bad. And I, I feel it. And, um, Yeah, that's all I can say, though. I mean, that, that, <laughs> truth be told, is this is this just hurts. Mm-hmm. Last thing before I hand it back to Sean Ding. <clears throat> you talk about breaking up the sword. What is that? What has that looked like? For oh, you? that's ugly. <laughs> uh, mm. It's it's ugly because. You know, I mean, it comes in, in several forms. I, I would say, you know, one form is, is just taking care of my heart and mind. That's trying to consume some good books, be around, you know, mm-hmm. intellectuals, people who, you know, dream of a positive world, you know, and people that I can be a hundred percent vulnerable with, like we're having this conversation. You know, if I don't, mm-hmm. if I don't nurture those safe places for me to land and be able to get this stuff out the, the way I'm able to speak so freely mm-hmm. with the two of you, which I, I appreciate. This is, you know, uh, this is, this is part of it. This is a form of therapy. That's why I'm, I tell you, I'm, I am, I'm delighted to be here. This, this helps me break up the soil. Um, mm-hmm. Because the fact that this, I mean, this conversation is, is even happening. We can do this, put it out there for people to listen to. Um, it, it certainly it gives me, a, you know, it softens soften things up for me a bit, right? Um, mm-hmm. I have to go to the gym, <laughs> whether I like it or not, mm-hmm. uh, even in some of my mm-hmm. deep depressions. And uh, and, and I, I genuinely have to make a great effort to to just love intentionally every day, you know, and, do, and you know, continue to do nice things for people. You know, th- those are the things that kind of mm-hmm. help keep me a little bit grounded. Because um, if if not, I mean, I think we covered a lot of ground on a lot of things to be pissed off about, <laughs> right? Hey, <laughs> we get we right. got a lot of reasons to be hurt, man. <laughs> got a lot of reasons mm-hmm. to be hurt, and uh, and I, I'm really trying not to hold on to that. But you know, hey, uh, America can be a tough place to live, and and, and sometimes you, you want to. Hold on to the to your anger and that hurt like a freaking teddy bear, man. I don't want to let it go. <laughs> I need this with mm-hmm. me, <laughs> you know. Um, mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I got to work real hard too. And it's yeah, like I said, it's just a combination of taking care of my mind, body, and spirit for sure. I appreciate the um, metaphor of what ways in which we can break up the soil. I also appreciate the um, 
you know, there's, there's too much anger to sit there and, and, and be petty. And I like that. <laughs> I like that. I'm like, oh shit, I could be a better human. Like just listening to you, I'm no. like, oh, because I spend my time thinking in the hey, other location. Most people might deserve and it. You're, you're, <laughs> hey, <that's laughs> twist. And you're bringing this like I going to the gym no, and I'm I definitely like, want trying to be around myself. And, and I'm like, to my what can I do Let's to be? Clear, okay? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm not a baby. I Jesus. also appreciate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I also appreciate the the, hmm. the talk about like talking about Gladwell, talking about reading Delma. Did you hear that? He said he said reading. I'm I'm saying that to Delma particularly because he doesn't like to read. I don't fucking like reading. Yeah. Um. What I love the most, I don't know if it's the most. Cause I love so much about what you've said and the complexity of unpacking this like fucked up military is this versus this, or we show up this way, not this way, that there's actually so much more. There's so much more. And what it, what it requires of us in our healing and the positions we're put in doesn't look like this romanticized notion of what it is. Um, and, uh, you know, a year ago, last month, same thing. I'm like, God, like having my own personal breakdown yeah dealing with the fact that the language and the declaration of independence says merciless Indian savages about my people, like the shit is real. And what does it mean to actually engage in what that anger is and what the complexities are and how can we talk more about it so that other people don't feel so goddamn isolated yeah. in, in this narrow um, piece. And, and when I think about what you talk about in the, breaking up the soil. My question is, um, many people don't think of poets when we think of the military. When you started engaging in poetry and words and um, verses and um, the spirit of the lyrical in that way, was that part of breaking up the soil? Oh, yeah. Or did you enter the world through there? And it just, it traveled with you through your career or was it, no, I needed that in order to navigate like what the earth was giving to me. Talk to us a little bit about the soldier's poetic response and, and your um, entry into it or if you were born. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I started doing poetry first in, in, in college and uh, Delma actually, is the reason why I actually got into poetry. He kind of forced me, right? There was this, you you remember this, it, there was this spoken word um, event and I had written probably like three poems at the time. Delma thought they were good. I still, I appreciate you for believing in me because I probably wouldn't be published right now if it weren't for you. Um, and so, you know, he signed me up and I, I went in there and, uh, yeah, I, I did spoken word for the first time, but when I think about, I needed that so badly in the military. Um, it, it was an outlet for me. This this is funny because I was my first duty station. I was at Fort Bragg. I'm with all these hardcore paratroopers jumping out of airplanes, you know, preparing to, you know, in, in our brains land anywhere in the world and just be this one big can of whoop ass or whomever. Right. And, you know, after work, I was going to open mic sessions and doing spoken word poetry. And 
it made me feel so good. And so it absolutely was a tool for helping me break up the soil and keep me, you know, helping me stay grounded. And then I think more importantly, as I, it's, it's, it's been a way for me to not just, you know, YouTube, you know, we all have our phones now. We can take all these fantastic pictures from these experiences. Right. But it's been, it's been a way for me to um, codify my experience what to me, you know, I get all these feelings, all these experiences in words. And, and that's been, that's been beautiful for me. You know, um, poetry is, man, this, it, it created some magic for me along the way. That's for dog, I'm sure. Yeah. Are you still writing? I am. I'm, I am. I'm actually, uh, I'm about two thirds of the way through a second book. So, I'm trying to think if mm-hmm. I want to go real crazy with it and go even deeper. Uh, Cause I think I want to really flesh out some of my life stories and experiences and that kind of thing, as opposed to just, um, I feel like poetry, poetry is often cryptic for me. Right. And, and it's a way, like I said, it's been a way for me to codify my, my emotional experience, but some of this, I'm ready to like just tell it all. I wanted to put all the bullshit out there, right? Go ahead, yeah. Mm-hmm. I hope you do, and I can't wait to read it, bro. Seriously, um, I, uh, I, as I'm getting as I we're, as we are getting close to to closing out this interview, I would be remiss um, if I did not name the fact that uh, as a uh, freshman coming into undergraduate college um, and developing uh, friendships with you and uh, four other brothers, right? We had a crew of six. There were opportunities with all of that newfound freedom to make really great decisions and really horrible fucking decisions. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I'm like edge of my seat. I cannot wait for where this is going. (laughs) I don't, and I, you know what, and I don't, and I don't, I don't know if this is going to be a letdown or or build up. But what I'm, what I'm trying to say is, um, Adrian, uh, in so many ways, when the crew is teetering on doing the right thing, you were our conscious. That's love. I appreciate that, man. That's big. And. Uh, you are a big part of developing a culture within our crew that allowed us to acknowledge what was hard, what was uncertain, what was fucking scary for us. And it's something that I will give credit to all of us for picking up on and investing in in turn. But you were a huge part of initiating that among us and making it safe. And I'll love you forever for that, brother. Deeply. That's beautiful, man. Thank you. <clears throat> no, thank you. And and you know this this journey, Delma. 
you know, getting ready to close it up and hang up my, uh, hang up my, my uniform Jersey here in a couple months. And, uh, <laughs> without, without this safe place to connect and you all listen to all my crazy thoughts and experiences and, uh, absorbed a lot of my tears. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not here and closing this thing out with, with uh, without all of you, really. This is it's big. I love you, deeply, man. I appreciate you, bro. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Now, you had to see this coming. <laughs> we cannot let you go Uh-oh. without asking you about your fucking petty. <laughs> when you can't tap into the better parts of yourself. When shit is real and you just don't feel like being bothered with being a good human. Right. I don't want nobody coming away from this interview because you said some amazing shit. I don't want nobody thinking you baby Jesus as you said earlier. They need to know you human. What does that look like, man? Give us just you ain't gotta spill all the you know tea, but give us some. It could be what your what your go to petty response is. It could be how you were petty yesterday. Yeah, yeah. we're open either way. Yeah. <laughs> we take all forms yeah. of petty to make ourselves <laughs> so, feel better. I'm Let a, us be clear. I'm gonna blame my mother, but I, I, nice. I, that was I, petty nice. right yeah, out yeah, of the way to start. That's a way to start. Yeah. <laughs> Got to tee it up softly, right? <laughs> my, yes. my mother was pretty good at it. I think I have grown into it even deeply, more deeper. Is uh, she used to be the queen of passive aggressive, and so mm. I've learned how to navigate in the professional space and let my passive aggressive petty be felt in such a way to where like it's going to mm. radiate in your body. You're going to go home and you're like, did that motherfucker say that to me for real? <laughs> <laughs> did he do that? Yes, I did, bitch. And Your I'm gonna petty better. so deep. It's like bone deep. It's bone deep. It's so deep. What you saying? I'm gonna get some of the best sleep I've had. Yes. And, and I'm not because sleep I know yeah. it sunk in. Yeah. And, 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 and until I get some type of like human response, and I can see that it sunk in, yeah, I'm, I'm not gonna let up. I'm gonna be relentless about it. So, <laughs> <laughs> Give me the first example of this Ooh. that that can come to mind. The first example? Yep. <laughs> I can't even say it, man. Next question. That'll get me in trouble. <laughs> it's got to do with my current work situation. I was leaving it at God bless. Mm. Can't say no names. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, okay. Thanks okay. for dropping that one. Okay, <laughs> you get the yeah. gist. Up. No, I'm gonna let that ride. Uh. I'm gonna let that ride. The fact that you said I'm gonna blame my mom, and the fact that you said once I see it landed, then I get some of the best sleep I've ever had. That might be enough to let you off the hook. I think okay. so because it's not like once it landed; it's like once it's in the other person's yes. like deep bones. Yes, and yeah, they're marrow. And I know that. Yes. Then I can sleep like yes. a baby. Yeah, it needs to that's feel like some petty man. shit. <laughs> it's like, like it got in your spirit. That's some petty shit. <laughs> uh, 
I accept that. I don't know that well, I need an example, Doma. Normally no, I do. Fair. Normally I'm like, give me an example. Put a name to it. Give me like, yeah. spell it out for me. Mm. I feel like I can feel. Yeah, no, it resonated. Yeah. The resonation resonated. Mm. I think the both of you are excellent. I appreciate you. <laughs> I can tell. I can, I can I can learn from uh, being petty. Yeah, Did you just say no. we're we're like the best at being petty? I nice. like this. I like this. <clears throat> what y'all got going now? Nice. <laughs> not me. Oh, Delma, we're not gonna do that. Not we're not gonna do me. that today. Nope. <laughs> no. You know what I'm saying? Delma wakes up petty. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> He like goes to bed dreaming uh, how we can operationalize his petty vision. So. My cat is in my lap, oh, and I'm trying oh. to figure out what I could do right now to be petty to her. Um, Adrian, I just, I just yeah. want to say, I know, I know, Zelma's going to transition us next. I just, um, one, please, 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 don't stop writing. Um, please don't. I, you know, I've, I've got to read a few of them, and the book is heading into my mailbox in the next week or so. And to think about your navigation from um, your childhood to the potential trial sermon that we never heard um, as you're beginning forays into potentially being a pastor and how you show up as that type of pastor throughout your career to navigating the horrificness of white supremacy to showing up um, in your realness around anger, fear, and and deep humility and love and joy. Um, it's I just offer so much gratitude for you bringing your whole your fullest self, and I'm saying that on behalf of I know my listeners are going to be hitting repeat on this episode again and again and again. So. I just really thank you for for being here and getting to meet you. And I really, truly hope when you um, send to your publisher that next set, you're going to come back and do some readings for our for our listeners. It'd be beautiful. So thank you. <clears throat> thank you so much. Dive In Justice is a co-production of the Center for Whole Communities and Shoreline Consulting. The Center for Whole Communities exists to build capacity at the individual, organizational, and community level to deepen awareness, embrace differences, and value relationships, thus making change possible. Shoreline Consulting co-constructs solutions and strategies that align with your goals and leverages the voices, perspectives, and wisdom of those who stand to benefit. For more information on the Center for Whole Communities, find us at wholecommunities.org. For more information on Shoreline Consulting, visit us on the web at thinkshorelines.com. Dive in Justice theme song created by Nasir Thomas Jackson. Doug Fearenstein is our audio engineer. Susanna McCandless is our administrative support. Jenny Cotting and Soraya Yamada Sapien help us out with marketing and promotions. Thank you all so much. Without your continued efforts, this show would not be possible.